Hey guys, uh, just a quick message about this episode. I heard this podcast episode on a different podcast called The Evolving Man, and it blew my mind. And I wanted to replay it here because I think the contributions of the host, Ben Gorski, make a big difference in the episode itself. So I didn't want to just interview the guest, Mark Wallen. I really wanted to have the whole episode here. I'm really curious if this touches you or if it leads to any breakthroughs. So remember, you can always get me at dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. And I would love to hear what you think. Inspiring conversations for the modern man. The Evolving Man Podcast. Okay, let's do this thing. Mark Wolin, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. I'm really excited to be looking at your face right now. And uh, if I could just give a brief intro, folks, uh, I'm really excited to have this man uh, sitting with me right now and, and to do an interview for the Evolving Man podcast listeners. Uh, Mark Wolin wrote a book called It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and how to end the cycle. And when did you write this book, Mark? Uh, nine years it took. Nine, but I, but nine, I finished it in 2016. 2016. Yeah, to me, when I, when I read this, I read this book recently, uh, last year, it, it feels like a legacy item. Like it, it, if I, I could have assumed that it was written 10 years ago uh, because it just feels so impactful for some reason, you know, I associate impact with almost older texts, right? Um, Mark also uh, is the director of the Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco. And I'd love to talk about family constellations with you as well on this show, because for those who don't know what family constellations work is like, it's, it's like magic. Um, so I would love to explore that with you. And uh, I highly recommend people read this book. It didn't start with you. And um, it's been translated into 20 languages, um, and it was a bestseller. So, Mark, welcome to the Evolving Man podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here, Ben. So, uh, perhaps we could just start talking about with talking about trauma. I mean, trauma is a hot topic right now. Um, it's a big word. It, it almost gets thrown around. It, you know, I'm an addictions counselor and the word addiction gets thrown around and trauma is, is achieving that level of status uh, in the public domain. And it's due time that we really have a trauma expert on my show. Um, and so, yeah, perhaps if you could start with a a definition of what trauma is and, and then we can get into what family inherited trauma is and how it presents in people. I'll, I'll combine them both together. So when, when something um, traumatic, uh, an event takes place, um, you know, when a trauma happens, it changes us. Literally it causes a chemical change in our DNA. And this can change how our genes function sometimes for generations, technically after this terrible event or this unsettling um, trauma, a chemical tag, an epigenetic tag will attach to our DNA and will tell the cells to use or ignore certain genes so we have a better chance of dealing with, surviving with this event, the trauma, the effects of this event. And then the way our genes are affected 
um, changes how we act or, or feel. For example, we can become sensitive or reactive to certain situations that are similar to this trauma. Um, even if the trauma occurred in a previous generation and we've inherited the effects, um, so we have a better chance of surviving it in this generation. Um, I'll give you an example. If, if our grandparents come from a war-torn country, so people are being shot or bombs are going off or uniformed men are coming into town and lining people up in the square, people being taken away. We never see our brother, our father again. Um, our grandparents would develop epigenetically uh, and they would pass forward a skill set of, of reactions. You know, it could be uh, sharper reflexes, quicker reaction times, uh, reactions to the violence to help them survive what's going on, uh, what they've experienced. Now, this is what's set into motion, and this is what passes forward. But the problem is here we are a generation later, not born in the same war-torn environment. And here we've inherited their stress response, uh, maybe even with the dials set to 10. And here we are prepared for this catastrophe that never arrives. And we see a man in uniform, policemen or military men, and we have a freak out or a, a car backfires. We hear a loud sound and we have this inherited reaction that lives inside of us. And we don't make this link, Ben. We don't make the link mm -hmm. that our anxiety, our, our depression, our hypervigilance, our shutdown is connected to our parents and our grandparents. We just think we're wired this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have a, you have a person who's highly reactive and, and having symptoms of trauma with uh, sometimes no real sign of where that came from wondering what's wrong with me. What's going on? Why am I different from other people? Exactly. We, we you know, it can be our own trauma. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, we, we focus on what we remember. I tend to focus as a clinician on what we don't remember and what's heritable, meaning I work with people with breaks in the attachment with our, our mom um, from events that we would even never even consider to think about. Um, uh, we are, she had a stillborn before us and she couldn't focus on our pregnancy, terrified she would lose us as well. And so instead of, oh, my baby's coming, my baby's coming, I'm so excited, is the fear, oh my God, what if this baby dies? I don't feel this baby kicking. What if this baby dies too? And her body floods with cortisol, which means our body floods with cortisol. Mm -hmm. And this is already creating a break in that relationship, a break in that trust. Um, or mom and dad are fighting, or mom isn't sure she's keeping the baby, or dad's drinking, or she's one of the parents is unhappily married, or all these events we don't remember, these early events, these affect us, as well as events that happened to our parents and grandparents in previous generations. I mentioned war, but there's a gazillion things. Dad and his brother are going to the swimming hole, and dad's nine, and the brother's seven, and the brother drowns. And dad feels guilty that he didn't save his brother or he's not, you know, he, he's at fault or uh, they loved the brother. They didn't love him. These types of traumas 
extend through our father's sperm, mm. through our mother's, into our mother's egg. And this is what, you know, is one of the things I talk about in the book, which is kind of interesting, is that when our mom is, when our grandmom is five months pregnant with, with our mother, all the eggs that our mother has at five months of fetus are already in our mother's womb, in grandmother's womb. Mm-hmm. And one of those eggs, of course, is us, which means even, uh, here's three generations, Ben, sharing the same biological environment, the same, the same womb space, us inside our mother, mm-hmm. inside our grandmother, with grandma's traumas. And then we also know on the other side of the uh, field, our father's sperm can be affected by traumas he experiences right up until transmission of that sperm. And, you know, here's this egg meeting the sperm and the embryos created. And here we are with information from our mother's events, information from our father's events, and never questioning. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So I love that you're making this a physical thing because I think there's a common misconception that trauma is uh, an emotional process and that it happens only within your lifetime and that you cannot pass that forward and that it's not a physical experience. It's really just a, I can't emotionally cope with this reality at this particular time. And so I go into this sort of freeze mode and that thing, that trauma gets sort of locked up in my system somewhere and locked away, but then it affects me from my subconscious, uh, making me, you know, more anxious, more jumpy, maybe depressed. Um, I, I feel like that's kind of the more common understanding of what trauma is. And, and it's correct. Mm-hmm. And it's correct. It just is a physical element yeah. of this trauma. There's uh, chemical changes, molecular changes, the heritable changes where we inherit the gene changes, the gene expression, not the, you know, the, the DNA strand doesn't change, but it's how it expresses. Mm-hmm. That's what's heritable. So basically, I like to say we inherit the stress reaction or the, the, the trauma reaction or the stress response of our parents and grandparents to these um, horrific events, you know, the death of a father, the death of a mother, the death of a sibling, war, famine, uh, uh, losing our home, uh, all, all these types of traumas that we would think through history um, have a catastrophic, physiologic, biological, chemical, molecular effect. Mm-hmm. I love how this work is expanding the understanding of, of trauma and how you know, we pass on our wounds to one another and how we become wounded in the first place. You know, I went through rehab when I was 15 years old. And when I was sitting there telling them about my life, I couldn't figure out why I was an addict. Uh, I, I couldn't figure out why I was there because my parents were nice people. They were still together. My dad's a doctor. My mom was a respiratory therapist and was a great mother. And, you know, I concluded like, well, it was just genetics. I'm just genetically an addict. And, uh, you know, in the context of this conversation, perhaps there's more truth to that than I once thought. But at that time, that's all I had. And then over many years of understanding the ways in which a person can get sort of thrown off kilter in their life and or experience traumas, 
I realized there was all this stuff going on in my family that even though we were financially doing okay and the family appeared to be together, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, discord inside of me in utero in my early formative years. There was a lot of misattunement between myself and my mother and my father. Yeah. And that all that stuff. Absolutely. This that's number one for addiction. You know, when people, you know, when the, the question of addiction comes to me, um, and I um, uh, am asked, well, "Can you talk about addiction?" The first thing I say is, we have to look at our early life and our early infancy and our early childhood, um, and, and even our mother's early life and mother's. Uh, did she receive enough attunement from her mother that she can pass pass it forward? Or were there, there events, like you said, uh, uh, traumas or tumultuous, um, uh, scorbic sort of um, relationships happening? Um, and then the child yearns for the that feeling of security that should be in the womb, but it isn't. It's missing. Literally, the dopamine's missing. From the brain, from the brain's rewards motivation circuitry, and and that the, these early events, whether they're heritable, mom didn't get enough, or mom couldn't give enough, or an event took mom's attunement or attention away from the pregnancy, uh, away from the baby. You know, we now know that attunement has to begin from conception forward. It's not okay to begin the attunement once the baby comes out. Uh, there's there's too much research pointing to mom needs to be um, uh, supported uh, by her partner and have enough peace surrounding her where she can give a peaceful, stable environment to that growing fetus inside her. Uh-huh. Yeah, Mark, this is this is why you're on the show, because you're just so you're so good at this. You you very much described like what I've discovered over the years about my mom and what was going on with her, you know, and I like to share some personal stories from time to time here. Um, and so I feel like it's a great time to, to, to just at least touch on this piece. So <clears throat> yeah, initially I was like, I mean, what's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with my parents. As I dig into my, my mom's story and her childhood, and as I start to get some perspective from other people on how they experienced my mom, uh, the first thing is like, she's very emotionally locked up, like described as ice cold by some people. And, um, I have an older brother who's three years older than me. And basically what I experienced growing up was he was a tormented young man, just emotionally always hurting, like angry, lashing out at me, jealous of me a lot, wanting to take my, whatever energy my mom gave to me, he wanted it. And this is mine. And so I experienced him as a bully, a demon. Like <laughs> I, I did not have a good relationship with him. And, um, and we had a big falling out, uh, when I was about 21, we had a fist fight and we didn't talk for 15 years. And I, I could tell the end of that story later, but, um, my mother in childhood was beat by her father regularly for, whatever, not, you know, small infractions. And she had a brother who never received any beatings and was the favorite in the family. 
And uh, she then, you know, in adulthood got out of there and ended up marrying subconsciously marrying a man who's very similar to her father, who was abusive as well. She got out of that relationship and then she found my father and uh, eventually gave birth to me. I was the third son. And I now realize that that environment in utero, in, in a mother who had not done any therapy by that point, uh, was emotionally just like flatlining. She was shot, shut down, ice cold. And so I was in this kind of like misattuned, ice cold environment while she was also trying to deal with my brother at three years old, who's already very emotional and, and she didn't know how to deal with emotions, right? Um, there, that, this, these were the years of behavior modification, just like, right. you know, leave them to cry or like put them in his, put him in his room, abandon him. You know, <laughs> these right. are like the ways the parents dealt with kids then, right. you know? Uh, and so that was my early environment. I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to get this. I got like ice cold from my mom. The world's not safe in her womb, you know? Right so many, you know, she'd sustained so much damage in her life. And, and then I came out into this environment where like, I didn't feel safe around my brother. Right. You know, and, and, and your brother hurting because the attunement wasn't on target sees you three years. His hippocampus comes online when he's about three years old. So that's when he begins to form memories. And the first thing he's looking at is you, the baby getting the attention that he did it, didn't feel he could get even at three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I often see this, an older sibling will resent the younger sibling believing that child got more, which isn't the case necessarily. But, I, but I've seen this. I see this a lot. But go mm-hmm. ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So that's the early impression. Yeah. So I, I mean, really how that manifested in me was this feeling of aloneness in the world and, yeah. and uh, not feeling safe and uh, not really knowing what that's about and, and seeking attention at school and seeking to hide at home because at home wasn't really safe. So I got in a lot of trouble at school. I got suspended from many schools. I got expelled a few times. And, and then when I found cannabis and alcohol, that was my solution for a while. And I just dove right into that until I ended up in rehab. And then I got turned in the right direction. And, um, you know, I got my, my current life, my behavior on track. Uh, but it took many, many years digging into this stuff to start, to start to uncover like, okay, where's that ascent, that, that core wounding, where, what is that in me? You know, where did that maybe come from? And it's brilliant uh, because we, that's what we can't find because it's hidden from us. <clears throat> Again, our memory doesn't come online. Our hippocampus doesn't complete connections to the prefrontal cortex until we're about three years old. So we don't have a cognitive memory of events before the age of two or three, but we have, certainly have a somatic memory. Our body, our amygdala, you know, our body has uh, a memory of these events that we can't quite pin it because we don't remember it. But, but that's exactly right. That's what's so insidious, remembering uh, or, or finally being able to link um, why we feel the way we feel to these events before we have memory in our mother's womb. And that's, that's what I find with so many people, Ben. I, you know, people come to me to train with me in inherited family trauma, and they want to look at generational trauma. And I'm always saying, okay, yeah, we'll look at that. But we need to be 
aware of the early events we can't pin the tail on the donkey we can't remember we can't uh, uh, remember because they happen precognitively when we didn't feel safe or secure when when our connection to our mother was cut off and now we have a difficulty trusting the feeling of who we are because the feeling of who we are is dependent upon mom's attunement mom's presence so our child a child's inner experience of himself um, is dependent on on on, on mom's ability to uh, be available to her child mm-hmm. um, so when we have a break with our mother it's felt as a break in the bond with ourselves and um, yeah then of course addiction um, or or alcohol or drugs you know something to get that dopamine that was yeah. cut short early is is the direction makes feels, complete sense it feels like a warm hug right uh, exactly what what you always wanted so um one of the things that i love about your process uh and how you explore these things with people is it's a very curious process you're opening the doors of possibility and you're just sort of putting everything on the table and and the reason i'm saying that is because i know a lot of men listen to this show and a lot of men might be wondering like well, geez, do, do, do I have trauma? Do I have inherited family trauma? Uh, should I be asking this question? You know, because until now I've just sort of assumed that my emotions are my emotions and, and that things are pretty simple over here and that I don't need to do any digging into the past. Why go there? Right. A lot of, a lot of men have that sort of story that hangs out. Like why dig into the past? You're just going to make things more difficult for yourself. Um, and, I think we're outlining here why it's useful to dig into the past uh, and have a look under the, under the covers and see like, okay, what's, what are maybe some of the reasons? Like if, if I do have an unconscious as we all do, like how do I have a look under there and, and, you know, see what's pulling the levers from behind and, you know, the way that you do that as a, as a base starting point is curiosity, just like, yeah, just be willing to sort of break down the walls of your own understanding of yourself yeah. and ask some questions about like, okay, what, where, what were my ancestors doing? What was my mother and father doing? What shit did they go through that, that maybe have transferred to me? And what early stuff did I go through that, that I haven't uncovered yet, you know, and be willing to see that stuff. And then you can begin the process. Uh, you're nailing it. That's exactly right. You know, I, I put all the questions right on, on my, in my book and on my website. I mean, there's, you know, I talk about these are the generational trauma questions to ask. And these are the early trauma questions to ask. Mom, was I in an incubator? Mom, did you and dad, did, when, I, when you first conceived me, were you going to keep me? Uh, did you and dad like each other? Did you want to be married? Did you feel trapped? Um, uh, were there any events? Was I almost ejected? Were you spotting? Were you had difficulty carrying the pregnancy? Was the delivery long? Was the labor difficult? Was I born natural? I mean, there's so many questions, but they're all on my website and they're all in the book because you're exactly right. Curiosity and asking these questions. Mm-hmm. So what do you, when you start poking around with people and asking questions, you know, how do you, what do you see in people that that starts to illuminate uh, these traumas? 
Oh boy, there's it's there's so multifaceted that question. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things I do is I look at trauma language, right? I listen to right. uh, answers to, for instance, I'll ask somebody, I'll say, "Hey Ben, if the worst thing happened to you, if things went suddenly wrong, if things suddenly fell apart, if 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 what's your worst fear? What's the worst thing that could happen to you?" And then I very acutely listen to that answer because for me. That answer, um, our trauma language, so to speak, it lives in our words, it lives in our fears, it lives in our, um, it, it, let me go into, let me actually mm-hmm. talk about this thing. So not just when a trauma happens, does it leave um, an, an effect in our DNA, a chemical effect, that, that's mm-hmm. true. But I've discovered that when a trauma happens, it also leaves clues behind in the in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences that, that form a breadcrumb trail, literally a breadcrumb trail. And when we learn how to follow this breadcrumb trail, you know, it can shine a light and help us find that missing piece of the puzzle, which then allows the whole picture to come into view and finally gives us a context, which which finally explains why we feel the way we feel. And, and this this um uh, trauma language, why I focus on trauma language, because as we know from trauma theory, when a traumatic event happens, um, significant information will bypass our frontal lobes, where, so it can't be processed. So the experience of exactly what happens in this terrible event, this trauma, will um, can't be named or ordered through words uh, because our language centers are compromised. Mm-hmm. So without language, our experiences get stored as fragments of memory, uh, fragments of body sensations that we kind of don't know what is happening, but we feel this way or that way. We have sort of have images, but we're not sure what they're connected to. Fragments of language, which I'm about to talk about, and, and fragments of emotions. It's like our mind um, disperses and essential elements get separated. Mm-hmm. To put it in one... <laughs> like yeah, exactly. Everybody's running a different direction. Like, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> to put, to put it in one sentence, it's it's almost like we lose the whole story of what happened. We either remember too much or oh. remember too little, but it's not in it's not in a way where we can process it. Hmm. So we can't ever complete the healing. So what I found is these pieces aren't lost, Ben. They've just been rerouted. And they resurface in what I call ver- verbal trauma language and non-verbal trauma language. So that's that answer to that question. So if I say, hey, Ben, what's your worst fear? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? If things went terribly wrong, if things suddenly fell apart, and then I listen because it's going to go in one of two ways. If you give me this type of language, it's going to go in attachment language. For example, if you said, I'll be alone, I'll be abandoned, I'll be rejected, I'll be left, there'll be no one there, there'll be no support. I'll, I'll, I'll be annihilated. I'll, I'll be, I won't exist. I won't matter. That is attachment language. And that goes in the direction of either I have a break with my mom or my mom has a break with her mom or my dad has a break with his mom. All that's heritable. So that's one piece of the puzzle. But then there's this really interesting other type of language that comes from generational traumas. For example, I'll harm somebody. I'll do something terrible. It'll all be my fault. I'll be hated by everybody. Um, I'll, I'll do some. I'll, I'll let people down. 
Uh, I'll be ostracized from my community. I'll, I'll, hurt, a, I'll hurt a child. I'll, I'll go crazy. I'll be locked up. Uh, I'll die. You know, these mm. types of sentences, you can feel them. They come from events <coughs> in the family history. So that's verbal trauma language. But then when there's, then I go through this whole teaching of nonverbal trauma language, and that's looking at our symptoms. You know, we look for the physical and emotional symptoms that show up after something unsettling happens to us. You know, we look for the fears or, or, or the anxieties um, that strike suddenly, often then when we reach a certain age. For example, uh, we, we hit the age 35. And that's the age our dad was all alone. Mom left him. He starts drinking. He starts going down the rabbit hole. And at the same age, 35, we start to self-sabotage without knowing why we're doing it. Um, we look at our depression, our destructive behaviors, and we see if they're connected to situations that are similar, similar traumas in our family history. We look at our relationships, who we choose, how we're cheated. Treated. Remember, you told me your mom chose a guy that was aggressive with her and her dad was aggressive with her? Yep. See, that's her nonverbal trauma language. So before she meets your dad, she's showing us that she was treated terribly somewhere in a trauma because it was repeated. And then us, you, me, your listeners, the listeners, how we deal with money, the repeated ways we shoot ourselves in the foot, how we deal with success. All of this forms a breadcrumb trail that we need to follow. Yeah. This is very cool. I think a lot of people are going to be interested in this. So like, you know, the physical manifestations of things in the body being linked to an ancestor, having something occur in that exactly. area. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Here it is showing up in our body and, and usually go, yeah, I'm just, wired this way. This is, uh, yeah, this is what happens when I feel overwhelmed. I just, you know, I just shut down. I like to be by myself. And, and we're not realizing that's the effect of trauma. Either something that happened in utero, something that happened to our dad, our granddad. You know, here we are, our body's finally giving us this magic piece. It's saying, look, this is what we want to look at. And instead, we want to shut it down because it's uncomfortable. And that's, that's what we find, Ben. We find, a, especially as guys, you know, we feel something in the body. We, we don't want to feel what's uncomfortable. We want to push it away when really it is the window and the doorway to explore and to ask questions. What happens to me right before I feel this way? When I get this physical symptom, what emotional experience am I having? You know, this is what I teach people to do in my book. I teach you to become a detective of, of your trauma language, of your experiences, of your, your, your inner feelings. You know, really, that's the whole first part of the book. You become a detective. You find out what your trauma language is. You find out why you feel the way you feel. Then the second part of the book, I teach people how to link it mm -hmm. to the events uh, in their early childhood, in their, in their mom's womb, uh, in the, uh, the, the dad's life, the grandfather's life, the mother's life, the grandmother's life, in the generations. And then the third part of the book, I teach people how to heal, which is how to have experiences that can change the brain. And we'll, we can get into that later. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I'd love to get into the healing piece. I definitely want to advocate 
for people to do this work with someone else if if they can, if at all possible. I found totally. that trying to do these explorations on my own, I need a mirror. You know, you would yeah. do better doing it in front of the mirror if you were going to do it by yourself, because at least then you have something to bounce. But you, you know, uh, in my men's group, uh, one of the first things guys do when they join is they talk about their relationship with their father. We ask, "Hey, this is your dad share." Tell us everything about yeah. your dad and your relationship with your dad and what it was like growing up. And tell us a little bit about where he grew up and what his Beautiful. history was so that we can get to know you and sort of peer under your covers a little bit. And, and then at the end of the guy's share, we ask him some questions. Oh, like, so what was your, you know, how, how, did, you, how did your relationship with your dad affect your relationship with other men, you know, and uh, relationship to your own manliness, your own masculinity? Um, and we just begin that process just when, the, when a guy enters the, enters the group and it, it sort of sets the stage for men to do this searching with each other. And we, we always uncover incredible things. Beautiful. And, you know, I did, the, I did your training. I did your level one family inherited trauma training this fall. And I had a buddy. I had a, a buddy to practice the work with. And, you know, we did some digging around on my father's side, you know, because what was coming up for me. And I don't know if we got all the way there, but one of my deepest fears is, is dying early and leaving behind unfinished business, unfinished work. And, um, you know, I've, I've had friends around me die early, but, you know, when I started asking my dad about, you know, when people died in the lineage on his side, basically the men tend to get cancer early and die, you know, yeah. before 70. Uh, often in their late fifties, early Mm. sixties. And my dad's been the, uh, exception to that because he's, maybe he's just been lucky. He's changed his diet, but you know, uh, so, you know, to me, I'm like, okay, well maybe I'm carrying some of that burden, some of that fear because he has that, he has that fear and he had unfinished business with his father. His dad died when he was 19 and he was away at university and he, he was resentful of his dad and, you know, had sort of a typical, relationship with his dad that a 19 year old does, which is like, like, you know, you see everything that's wrong with him <laughs> and not much of what's right, you know, right, at that age. Right. And then as you, you know, go move through your twenties, you tend to sort of reconcile some of that and see your father as a, as just a man doing his best, you know, but at 19 cut off. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I know my dad was terrified that that would happen to him for me and that I would have to go through that. So I, I feel like in some way I was carrying that fear. You know? Oh, yeah. 19 is too early to lose one's father. And it makes, makes complete sense that I'll die early and I won't finish what I need to finish. Mm-hmm. Makes a but, lot of sense. Yeah. And so just to, just to wrap up that point, you know, I, I could not have really done that exploration without my partner asking me these questions and just poking and prodding and lifting things up and asking about my fears and, and searching for this uh, core language that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so much better when we can do this in process with another. So here's a question. How does a person do this work without spiritual bypassing? Right. Because there's, a, there's, um, the ego is tricky and we have, uh, 
humans are pretty skilled at putting something over there. When it's something that I need to deal with, I, I go like, oh, well, that's not my stuff. That's your stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, I, I sit in plant medicine circles and sometimes people will come out of a plant medicine experience and they've seen some really dark stuff and they'll go, wow, I, I saw some really dark stuff. Like whose stuff was that? in here. Like I, maybe it was your stuff. Right. <laughs> and we're like, maybe it was your stuff, man. Like, have you ever thought about that? And that's just that's a, right. a, a, a beautiful example of, of what the mind does and how we can, you know, put things over there. Right. Um, so this type of work is in a sense, like embracing that, like, Oh no, there's many influences on you. So how do we do this work without um, dissociating and spiritually bypassing spiritual bypassing? Yeah, that's yeah, a good question. You know, we, as you say, the mind is so tricky. The ego is tricky, and we want to avoid what's painful. Mm -hmm. um, and many times when we begin our spiritual work, um, and somebody says, "Hey, the answer is in your body to stay embodied, to be with what's uncomfortable, what feels intolerable in your body," and the minute we hit into what's intolerable we're out the door we're we're back on our cell phone we're doing social media we're go exercising we're leaving because we don't want to look at what's painful but what we don't realize is we, we can when we explore what's uncomfortable in our body we can reach what's beneath that the sensations that we experience as life-giving mm -hmm. you know a lot of times when i teach uh People have to be with what's uncomfortable. We stay with what's uncomfortable. We stay with what's painful until we reach something beneath, just with focus and awareness, staying, uh, being able to feel something like pulsing. Oh, there's my blood pulsing, my heart beating. What happens when I stay with this feeling of blood pulsing? Oh, tingling. I'm feeling this sensation of spreading, tingling, expanding, something softening, um, blood flowing, waves of energy, waves of warmth. And that's really the key to be able to hold what's beneath what's uncomfortable, to hold these life-giving sensations, and then to be able to hold them for a stretch of time, even a minute, mm -hmm. and do that six times a day. That can be enough to change our brain that can be enough to calm our stress response uh -huh. but the the main thing is to take the time to have these experiences where we sit with ourselves and let these sensations have a, a an effect on us uh-huh yeah yeah so you're leaning into the work you're leaning into the uncomfortable sensations yeah. and you're Not letting you're giving away. it yeah giving it space yeah. give it space allow it to be there. It's another one for men, you know, especially, uh, but for all of us, we love to scoot out the door as soon as the pain comes. Uh, and it's, I mean, we think that it's going to kill us so that we're going to fall to pieces and that we're never going to come back. But I've never seen that happen for people doing. No, when we go, when we go in deeply enough and stay with what is first, as we know is, you know, my neck is tight there's these feelings of guilt. I shouldn't have done this. I feel this. You know, when we stay with that, that ultimately dissolves into, uh, you know, I'm going to use this word, the void, nothingness, emptiness. But it is that emptiness that sits beneath that everything on top of that emptiness 
is mostly story of the mind and, and ways it seduces us into, into an addiction to pain because that's, we have this, this um, draw to what's painful at the same time we don't, you know, mm-hmm. the same time to avoid it. But, but really, at the end of the tunnel is the light of awareness, which is this emptiness, which is just pulsing, which is just heart beating, which is just stillness. And that's what we're after. And just like you said, there is an end to the, the pain. It turns into something quite uh, uh, pleasurable. Yes, I love, I love what you're alluding to here. You know, the way I see it is um, we love to avoid our pain, but we also like, love to recreate it by doing so, right? Yeah. So that's a very common pattern in addiction is, you know, like I'm running from my pain. I'm running from my feelings I, and I use whatever I'm using, whether it's a process or a drug, gambling, sex, drugs, whatever. And that relieves my pain momentarily and the pain comes back and I repeat the process and I stay stuck there. And what we do in recovery is we take the drugs away. We take the process away. Uh, One of the things that rehab is great for is like, it's an isolated environment. And then the pain rises, you want to run away and there's a group there to hold you. There's counselors there to hold you. And they say, go towards the pain, like let the pain come sit with it for a while, spend some time with it. Uh, give it a voice, you know, and it doesn't often happen in one day, but it's like a slow process. And slowly you start to deflate that pain balloon that was welling up inside of you for years, ready to just pop. And you relieve some of that pressure that was causing you to use in the first place. And the more you do that healing work, the less of an impetus you have to use in the way that you did when you were using addictively. So, uh, the, the work is leaning in, giving it space instead of and, running and away. A, and there's another piece that we don't quite think about, which is this generational piece, mm-hmm. which is the way we're unconsciously connected to our parents, what, what I call we're merged with a parent. So there's another part of pain. Uh, everything you said, I agree with, and you're absolutely right. You lean into the sharp edges as, uh, what is, uh, what's her name, Pema Chodron, lean into the sharp points, the sharp edges, and g- give space to what's uncomfortable. But then he, uh, many of us, without realizing we're, we're doing so, and I want to talk to us men specifically, we're sharing or repeating a piece of our father's or mother's difficult life situation his or her life experience, his or her misfortune. And this is also an unconscious way of bonding with them. Mm-hmm. You see, we're not bonded with them. We don't like them because, you know, their their life is difficult and it's difficult to be around them. But we have this uh, subterranean thread that connects us. Um, I, I often teach that there's four ways we can merge with a parent that creates pain. One is, the first way is, um, I will follow you. And, and that's, let's say we have a parent that died young. And uh, we unconsciously also try to die young. Uh-huh. We, we, do, we, we try to die early. We do high-risk behaviors. We don't wear a helmet. We go really fast on our bike or skateboard or rock climbing, but we don't have protective gear. We do drugs and alcohol which is a slow form of suicide, right? We try, dad, you died young, I will follow you. That's one. 
Mm-hmm. Number two is, Dad, I will share it with you. Um, you drink, I'll drink. You were treated poorly in your relationships. I'll be treated poorly in my relationships. You lost your first love. I'll lose my first love. You fail in business. I'll fail in business. You have poor health. I'll have poor health. We don't know we're doing this. It's this subterranean thread. The next one I teach is, I'll do it in your place. You know, dad, mom, you couldn't feel this, but I feel what you can't feel. You can't feel the sadness. I feel all of it. Dad, mm-hmm. you want to die, and I'll, I won't eat. I'll, I'll become anorexic. Um, uh, you, you caused this accident, and someone died, and I'll take my life. We don't even think that we're doing this. The last one is I'll atone for you. You know, um, I'll go to jail, or I'll take my life because of the life you took. Or I'll get sick and atone for what you did. Dad, you were, when you were 16, you drove drunk and your, your best friend died in the car. You know, in the car. And at 16, um, you know, I try to die at the similar age. Um, these types of unconscious connections, we need to, we need to uh, de-thread. We need to pull it out of the fabric of our existence because these are the unconscious places I talk about in my book where we get hooked without knowing we're hooked. We repeat without knowing we're repeating. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got some fantastic stories in your book and and I've heard a ton of stories from you in our training and they just, I could just listen to them forever because they're, they're like movies. Like it's so interesting how this stuff happens to people. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I definitely encourage people to read the book just, just even for that piece alone. And before we get into the healing bit, I was wondering if now was a good time to talk about the, the special type of relationship that fathers have with their sons and that mothers have with their daughters. Uh, if you want to share a piece on that. I would love to hear that. Okay. Yeah. I'm happy to do it. So, um, uh, this is a long conversation. I just had a whole class on this. But, yeah, right. You've got to abbreviate it. Let us. me abbreviate a little. <laughs> I would say the most common dynamic I see with men is this. As a boy, his mom was unhappy with his dad. And because she did feel connected to his dad, her husband, she forges a closer relationship with her son. And This helps her ease the emptiness of her unhappy relationship with our father. But unfortunately, she makes us, the son, more important than the father. Now, of course, behind this are two earlier dynamics in her life. You know, she was either unhappy with her mother, um, and the mother's the template for the partner. If she didn't get enough from her mother, she feels she doesn't get enough from our father, Mm -hmm. or her mother was unhappy with her father and merged with her mother. Remember, I was just talking about merging. Loyal to her mother, who couldn't be happy with grandpa, she's not happy with our dad. Now, because she feels more connected to us, the son, and not connected to our dad, us, the son, we're caught in a web, Ben. You know, on the one hand, it feels good because there's this inflation of being adored by her. And it feels good because, you know, we feel important. Um, The son feels needed by her and he becomes her confidant or her good boy. But this dynamic doesn't allow him to receive from her. 
And this is what's deceptive. Hmm. Instead, he's giving to her. Remember, he's easing her pain. The son's easing his mother's pain. He feels responsible for making her feel better. But ultimately, the bond is broken. He can't take in from her because he's in a position of taking care of her. Now, this is the problem. It sets up this pattern of overextension, pattern of people-pleasing. He becomes a people-pleaser. He becomes an overgiver. He's nice not guy. A, the nice, right. He's a nice guy. And he's not able to say no, especially to women. But really, he can't say no to anyone. And he's not able to uh, access his gut feelings because in this dynamic where he's giving to his mother, there's no space. So he can't access his core, his gut feelings. You know, he can become a healer, a therapist, a helper of some sort, um, have a large female clientele. Um, but, but he's not so generous to his lover in a deeper way. Because as soon as his lover wants a deeper relationship with him, he feels inundated by her. Inundated, inundated by her wants and her needs. Uh, even sexually, he can shut down. He can become impotent he, to avoid her altogether, or he can go in the opposite director, direction and fall into that sexual trance, um, which doesn't create more sexual intim intimacy, it creates less. You know, mm -hmm. that trance he goes into helps him avoid a real connection. The sexual trance is similar to sexual addiction. It's yeah. that yearning for closeness with the mother that was thwarted when that bond with her early became compromised. So when we have a break in the bond, you know, we, with her, with our mother, we often sexualize that longing for her uh, by going into a sexual high, but it's, but it's, which is akin to this intimate attunement we didn't get or that got broken. Um, there's so much to say about this. Really. You're, you are describing a large chunk of my generation of men, you know, yeah. the guys that I know, the guys that I meet in my men's circles and on their way into men's circles, <clears throat> identifying with this nice guy phenomenon. You got guys read this book, no more Mr. Nice guy. And they're like, it's me. <clears throat> That's me. He's writing about me, you know, and what you just described yeah. about, about, you know, we don't know this stuff that happened with our mother, but the symptomology and how it shows up in us, I think that hit home for a lot of guys. Uh, you know, it's even worse because not only do we avoid real connection with our partner, and this is crucial, uh, we also have lost our father. This, mm -hmm. is, this is the deepest part. The boy, because he's lost his father, because, you know, mom didn't like him, so the boy can't like him. The boy even carries the mother's negative feelings about his father. And he believes they're his own feelings. You know, he says, yeah, my father was selfish. It was all about him. He was never there for us. He was never a good father. But these are the mother's feelings. And in this dynamic, Ben, the, the father also loses his son because the father sees the son getting the love from his wife that he can't get. And he may even reject his son or become physical with his son uh, just to punish the wife even. But yeah. the, main, the main thing here, and this is the last thing I want to say, is the son's path to the father is blocked when the mother doesn't like the father. The son can't make that journey on his own to the father. He needs mother's support. He needs the mother. She's the linchpin to connect them. And if she doesn't like the father... It often doesn't happen. I, I have a blog on my website called, called A Worried Mother's Guide to Helping Her Troubled Son, which is helping mothers help their sons get back to their fathers.
This is amazing. This is amazing. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's definitely compounded by the fact that again, for guys of my generation, most of us grew up with our mothers around much more than our fathers. Our fathers were away at work and our mothers were more present. Some, some of us came from dual income families like I did, but my mom took a lot of time off to, to take care of the family. And in school, I was taught by mostly women. I, I, I had a few male teachers in my, you know, 12 grades that I went through, uh, but mostly females. My, we had nannies when my mom was at work, when she was working, females. So there was this, uh, there's a lack of connection to the masculine, the father figure. But then if there's also that break uh, and mothers, right. mothers uh, more dominant in the field, it's very hard to reach him. That's and, right. That's exactly yeah. right. So I have felt that in my own life. I felt that, you know. It, it, I love what you're doing with men's group. You know, when you were describing what you do with the men's group is you, that right away you bring them in to talk about their relationship with their father. So spot on. And yeah, I mean, it's a tradition because it's been, it's been so impactful. And, you know, when I dig into like, what is it about men's groups that's working? Why are, why are guys saying like, this has been the most healing experience of my life over the last two years, being with this small squad of men and just talking, speaking my truth with these guys. Um, what I think it really is about is we're giving each other what we have always needed from the masculine. You know, we're, we're getting what we always wanted from men, you know, and in, in every man in the circle is like a father to you, you know, and you're learning also to give that to them and then to give that to yourself. And so we're, in a sense, we're closing the loop and um, healing it, right? So, well, you know, there were initiations in, in most cultures before modern times where we had to um, perform a task or a feat um, and be educated by the men to even join the men. And all this is lost. Yeah. And so men's groups are providing this initiation process, even, even at a later age, 20s, 30s, etc., which didn't happen in our culturally because it's been a lost tradition. Maturation into manhood has been a lost art. Mm -hmm. It's been a lost art. Yeah, and we're trying to revive it. There's some young men's initiation stuff that I've been getting into. Uh, awesome. And it's just so fulfilling to be a part of that and to like shake a young man's hand and say, hey, welcome, you know, like after beautiful. he's been through a challenge, it's beautiful. So um, briefly, the healing process, you know, what are some of the things that you take people through when they've discovered like, oh, I have this like thing in my ancestry or I have this break in the bond with my mother, you know, yeah. maybe mom's still alive, maybe she's dead. Um, you know, how do you take people through healing yeah. processes that, that can help them resolve some of this stuff? So again, uh, when I work with people, it's again, determining what we're healing from. Mm -hmm. Are we healing from a, a missing father, a break in the attachment with our mother? Did we have to give to her and we can't receive from her? Do we have no space because there's a too solipsistic of a relationship with our mother or are we inheriting generational trauma from sperm and egg, mm -hmm. uh, mother and father's, grandmother and grandfather's events. But nonetheless, healing in general, and I want to talk about it in general, we've got to have positive experiences that can change our brain, simply put. And then we've got to have a practice, a daily practice, 
where we practice the new feelings and the new sensations associated with these positive experiences. And when we do this, we not only create new neural pathways, which we know of, but we also stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters in our brain, like so, uh, serotonin, dopamine, GABA. Mm -hmm. We also uh, stimulate the release of feel-good hormones like uh, oxytocin, estrogen, and even the very genes involved in the body's stress response can begin to function in, in a new proof way. Basically, we can change the way our DNA expresses. Mm -hmm. Now, the key here, um, when people ask me, okay, Mark, what is a positive experience? In the book, I teach people how to receive comfort and support when there was none, mm -hmm. um, or, or feelings of how to develop feelings of compassion or gratitude, have a, having a gratitude practice, yeah. um, because these states feed the prefrontal cortex, um, having a generosity practice, doing something kind each day, a loving kindness practice, a mindfulness practice, ultimately anything that allows us to feel strength, peace, joy inside, because it's these types of feeling states, these types of experiences that feed the prefrontal cortex and can help us reframe that trauma response, that stress response. So our brain, our limbic system can downregulate, calm down. To put it in a nutshell, um, we want to pull energy away from the limbic system. Um, our overactive amygdala, which has often grown twice its normal size in a trauma, and we want to bring engagement to other parts of our brain, specifically the prefrontal cortex, where we can integrate these new positive experiences and our brains can change. Uh, we know just from mindfulness studies that practicing mindfulness shrinks the amygdala, you know, the trauma uh, alerter, the, the, you know, the, the part of us that mm -hmm. says alert, alert, alert. You know, we don't like this. We don't like this. You know, and it thickens the prefrontal cortex. And again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is being with what's uncomfortable in our body until we can reach what's beneath it, that feeling of peace, that feeling of uh, buzzing, soften, softening, pulsing, tingling, heart beating, something, some positive experience in the body that we can hang on to and say, yeah, this is nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're speaking to the power of prayer, meditation, visualization, right? Uh, if any, you know, I, a decent amount of my listeners will be familiar with Joe Dispenza's work. And this, you know, this is a guy that's doing these really powerful inner visualizations that helps people heal their bodies, heal cancer. Heal, you know, he healed his spinal cord injury in like three weeks with uh, visualization, right? So, right. Um, visualization yeah. is just as important as having an experience in, in real time. Because mm -hmm. when we visualize, the same regions of the brain activate, the same neurons activate. And so the brain doesn't know whether we're visualizing or experiencing something in real time. It still gets the healing. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh Beautiful. Yeah. So once you've uncovered the thing and you understand what's happening, you can adapt and create a, uh, you know, a new experience for yourself via visualization, practice. prayer, practice, yeah. ritual, or things, or things been in real time. You know, it might mm. call your dad, call your dad, tell your yeah. dad, right. dad, I'm glad we're close. 
dad, I'm sorry, I've been distant. You know, call your mom, mom. You know, it's like we can do things in real time. Gratitude, that's a real time practice. Loving kindness, generosity, real time practices or visualizations. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, just to touch back in on a personal story, I, I didn't talk to my brother for 15 years after that fist fight. And honestly, for the first while, it felt great. I, I felt free from him. You know, I, I, I had dealt with sort of that dominant force for so many years and I could finally have my own relationship with my parents. And, and I, I was able to set boundaries and say, I'm with you guys when he's not around. And we, and he started doing the same thing. Right. And they built separate relationships with both of us. And, and that went well. And then I joined men's groups and I started, uh, you know, healing some of the stuff that still needed to be healed with, with other men and really like learning to stand in the fire, receive hard feedback, receive challenges and not lash out, you know, <laughs> cause I, I was hyper vigilant, you know, like anything that was perceived as bullying towards me or towards someone else, like my swords out, you know? Um, and you know, I had to realize that I was hyper-reactive and that I was reacting to a wound. And, and so dig into that stuff and, and deal with it with other men and, and talk about that stuff when it comes up. Like here, I'm feeling like I, you're an enemy right now because you raised your voice and uh, I want to fight you, but I don't want to fight you, you know? And, and we sort that out and there's a healing moment there. I start to send love to my brother and just psychically. And, uh, at one point I wrote a letter to him on my mother's birthday and said like, Hey, like, I want to resolve things with you, but, uh, I, you know, I need your willingness, you know, and he silence, nothing came from him for a couple of years this spring, which I believe was while the training was happening with you. COVID's going on, uh, grandpa who's 100 years old, mom's father who beat her as a child gets pneumonia, non-COVID pneumonia, ends up being sent to the hospital and um, can't go back to his old folks home because they won't transfer him back. Even though he's recovered from pneumonia, he gets transferred to this place that he doesn't have much contact with anybody. He's alone and we are not allowed to visit him and he dies. He uh-huh. dies within uh, f- you know three or four months of that happening. I think he got pneumonia late February, early mm-hmm. March and he died at the end of May. So he dies and, um, you know, I try to find out, you know, when can I go visit the body? Uh, and it turns out I decide not to go see, but my brother who had been visiting my grandpa a lot decides to go see, um, the body. And when he touched my grandfather's body, a wave of emotion washed over him and he released a whole bunch of resentment that he had towards me and, all of his like armor that he had on around the family, it's like it dropped off of him. And my grandpa had been telling him like, Hey, you need to, you need to reconnect with your brother, you know? Cause I had been, we had been connecting with him separately. So he, all this stuff washes off of him. And then we do a zoom funeral. Cause we had to do a zoom funeral and I'm hosting it. And my brother starts talking to me and you know, being cordial and friendly with me, complimenting me and thanking me for putting on the thing. And he sends me his number through the zoom chat. And so we start talking and when it was time to bury grandpa's ashes with grandma's, she passed a few years ago. 
we were both there. We both held their ashes as we put them into the ground and he cried on my shoulder and, and, um, and over the next few weeks, we had a few talks where he just, he just cleared it with me and was like, Hey man, I'm done holding this stuff. I'm, I, 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 when I touched grandpa, everything released and I don't have time to hold this resentment with you anymore. I love you. And it's beautiful. I wonder if grandpa had a difficult relationship with a brother of his, his father, his father was an alcoholic and, and, and beat his mother all the time. And and one day he took a knife and almost Uh, killed his father. And so he came from the, you know, and he also had alcoholic brothers, two of them. So he came from that and, and then the abuse passed on to my mother and, and there's this and unsafe environment. I've got to plug in, I've got to plug in my computer. I'm at okay. 10%. Okay. One second. <laughs> Here I am. I'm back. Okay. So it's like there was a curse on between my brother, myself and my mother, you know, my dad's woven oh, in there sure somehow. And then it was like lifted. Wow. That's it's beautiful, yeah. and you know when you describe the background story with Grandpa, two alcoholic brothers, a father that he went against uh-huh. with a knife. You know, uh, it, it's not easy for us guys to go against our father. Mm-hmm. It, it creates an energy inside of us because we're half our father chromosomally, epigenetically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to say to the listeners, and I'm sure that the listeners already. Uh, if they're in your community, they've healed these relationships. It is important for us men, whether our father is living or passed away, whether we can do it in real life or we have to do it through visualization to heal this relationship with our dad. It brings us a type of generational connection, a strength. Um, yeah. Yeah. It allows us to step fully into our own manhood, into our full potential as a man, when we can heal that peace with our fathers. And in many ways, like the way that I talk to the guys of my generation about this is like, we're the first ones who really have the opportunity to do that because my dad was not taught how to do this work. He was given a list of things that were important for him to do in his life. And, and this type of emotional healing work was like not even on the list. There was not a possibility for that. And surely not for his father either. Like we're really the first generation men who have that possibility. And in a sense, like, okay, this is our work to do. Right. Uh, Our our fathers. I like the way you're phrasing it. It's our our, work to do. Yeah. I mean, they, our fathers made the world a better place to be in so that we could be here and live our best selves. You know, I, I do not wish to live in 19, Forty or you know, nineteen hundred, or you know, any of the generations back. I do appreciate uh, this current time, and so you know, I think about what is our work to do now. Um, this is it. So, uh, thank you, Mark, for um, opening so many more doors for people to do this work, and uh, for for lighting the way and and for giving so much more possibility. Uh, for people to explore and so many skills and so many tools for people to, to use, to try to, um, to do this work. It's not, you know, it can be messy work. It's, it really is a detective thing 
But uh, I think the best people can do is engage the process, get curious and explore with other people. Uh, don't try to do this only on your own. You need, you need space holders. You need people to ask questions, people to mirror. Um, and um, that's what a men's group for is for. That's what a therapist is for. If people want to do this type of work that, you, you know, you've been doing this for your adult life and you've achieved a level of mastery in this, if people want to work with uh, people you've trained, how can they do that? Uh, MarkWollin.com, W-O-L-W-O-L-Y-N-N.com. And they can either take my trainings, which are streamable, uh, my courses that are streamable, my book which is the handbook on inherited family trauma mm -hmm. or work with me if I'm available or one of the people I've trained. Absolutely. Uh, we're also on all social media platforms. Amazing. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Uh, and your book is it didn't start with you, how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. I think people will understand the title of that book more now, having heard the context of, uh, of this conversation. Uh, is there anything else you want to share with people before we uh, wrap up? If you have children, make sure your children know your family history. Because we as mm -hmm. children often have to dig and ask and find out to know why we're affected the way we are. Because a lot of the old thinking was, don't talk about what's painful. Keep it, yeah. keep it sealed. And it is not the best strategy. What is silenced persists. What is, what is um, silenced does not stay silent, mm -hmm. but pushes up out of the grave in a way um, to repeat and relive. Um, tell your kids what happened yeah. in their family. Learn, learn your family's history and tell the Absolutely. story and, and pass it on. Yeah. Shake the family tree. <laughs> Shake the family tree and see, see what, you what find. falls out. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my father's generation, it was like, you know, the more secrets they could keep, the better, the tighter it all was, you know, the tighter the story was, but yeah. as those things always come out in the wash and, right. and they get passed down, the more secrets you keep in a, in a family, the more it just continues that yeah. uh you know the wounding and the secrecy you know so, and and what what never healed all the way what traumas in the family history once you shake that family tree mm -hmm. so it falls out what where did the healing for example you completed this healing cycle with your brother that's mm -hmm. good you see but where didn't it heal with your dad and his dad with you know etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah yeah Amazing, Mark. Thank you, sir, for the work that you've done. Thank You're you for, so for, for coming on my show and, and for yeah. explaining to people for the umpteenth time in your career what this stuff is. And, and uh, you know, uh, when you do work like this for so long, I, I can understand how a person would uh, just not want to do these talks anymore, not want to, you know, share just... <laughs> It just gets old, right? But no, there's, there's actually no. It's always it, new. It's always fresh, especially you know in our conversation. It's nice because we're just riffing off each other. Yeah, and you know, it's in a way, it's uh, completely fresh. I've talked about things yeah. in this talk I've never talked about before in a yeah. podcast. So I'm grateful to be on your show. 
I love that about you as well, that you're, you're, you have that curiosity that you're always evolving. You're always changing and you're always yeah. looking for the, what's, you know, what is new? You're seeing things fresh, right? Uh, so you yeah, have this yeah. young energy. And um, if you do continue to put out works, I look forward to uh, more writing, more blogs, more trainings. And, and uh, um, you're certainly illuminating uh, so much for so many. So thank you, Mark. Thanks thank again. You, ben. All the best. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Just a quick note about a drop-in men's group that's coming up this Monday, May 3rd. I think it's obvious by the end of this episode that we need each other and that it's easier to do this kind of work in community. So if you've ever been interested in men's work or you've wanted to get started with a men's group that's a pretty low barrier to entry, this one is drop-in, meaning you don't have to commit to the group. You can just come and go as you like. You can go to evolutionary.men for more info on it. It's at 7.30 p.m. Pacific this Monday, May 3rd costs $15. And I will also drop the link in the description of this episode if you're interested in attending. And again, you can look that up at evolutionary.men.